The square was <laughs> magic. Beware your human heart. This is the Diabolical Index for Monday, December 10th, 2018, where the pages of the uncanny reside. I'm Corey Dawson, as always. Tonight we are in the Nuthouse uh, for my second uh, return to the podcast after a, a long little while. Tragedy and adventure and, and all kinds of things that had gone on, so that's where I've been. But I'm back now. This is uh, I'm calling this the episode zero plus one. Because we're not back on the uh, the regular uh, intervals and the regular uh, index entries as normal, uh, but that's okay because we have a special, uh, very very special episode tonight where uh, I'll be interviewing a honest to goodness badass author. It happens uh, all the time on the internet, but this will be the first time on the Diabolical Index for uh, for an interview, and I'm really looking forward to it because. Um, because we've kind of, I mean, to say that we worked together before is might be stretching a little bit. We definitely collaborated on some uh, some fun stories and and different things in the past. So 
Uh, without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce Brooke Wara. Brooke, are you there? Yes. Hey, Brooke, what's going on? Uh, not much talking to you. Well, that's watching my cat be a spaz as soon as uh, as soon as we got on here. My cat decided to freak out. Oh, isn't that always the way? Is there is yeah. there anything that you can do that a cat doesn't want to be a part of in some kind of way and improve? No, actually, this particular cat is um, especially needy. I can't hold the phone or a laptop or anything without him having to attack it. Have there uh, have there ever been any? Um, instances where he's kind of flopped on the keyboard and actually improved a sentence for you <laughs> yeah yeah for sure that's cool okay well um yeah we got some we got some really cool things to talk about about your uh about your career and and the legacy that you're putting out there um why don't you just kind of explain what it is um what kind of stuff that you normally write what what's the flavor of what you do we have uh, a podcast called heckles and horror that deals with kind of like the the horror film genre and i'm sure that uh, that tj hopefully tj he might be in the middle of some other stuff but hopefully he he uh, checks this out because i'm sure he'd be really interested but um how would you characterize what you put on the page um well as you know i'm uh, primarily a short story writer um so i haven't written a novel yet um, which really drives my parents crazy. But um, I I think I fall in the category of weird fiction, which is a subgenre of horror, and I tend to use a lot of magical realism. So it'll be like our world and our timeline, but then... Uh, people's hands will catch on fire spontaneously and that's just kind of a regular occurrence i guess it's accepted so that kind of stuff just goes on well i'm a, i'm a i have real uh vested interest in magical reality uh, i'm kind of glad that they i'm not a gigantic fan of classifying things but in this case it makes it a little easier to talk about um like in the case of i don't know if you've seen the film mandy that just came out recently oh man i have not seen that yet it's been very extremely polarizing among among my friends um but it definitely has that uh magical realism where you've got you know just a normal person a normal world but when you take a look around in their surroundings and you know into the sky you see like red storms of of crazy like manic energy and uh people there's an ethereal mandy is kind of an ethereal person but she you know she wears a black sabbath shirt and she works in a little uh hand-me-down shop and stuff but she she has some kind of inner uh inner glowing and inner um special special inside that uh that like a cult leader uh can can pick up on so like there there are all kinds of things there's kind of like a an excalibur type vein to it and there are things that make men more than men and and all that kind of stuff so there's definitely a thread of that that goes through that i totally recommend it um a lot of people have uh misgivings about it i think that the the trailer i wasn't i don't know when i saw the trailer it ended up being exactly what i thought it was going to be but there there's been some debate but anyways yeah with the magical <laughs> with the magical realism um i i'm definitely a gigantic fan of that especially since it kind of uh it reels people in because it's familiar but then at the same time it's fantastical right i think they call that 
like the uncanny valley where it's it's something that looks familiar but it's just wrong enough that it kind of stands the hair up on the back of your neck because you know it doesn't fit doesn't quite fit i like stories that that go to that place the uncanny valley and you i do need to check that movie out i've heard tons about it and like you said i see all of my friends it's like they either really loved it or they absolutely hated it but for the most part i think most of what i've heard was really good and then it's like the one film that i didn't get around to this last year yet uh, I wanted to answer a question. We've had some uh, questions coming up uh, off of Twitch and, and different places, but uh, Josh DeForge, I definitely wanted to put out there that uh, the name of the movie they were referring to is Mandy. It stars uh, Nicolas Cage and Linus Roach, and uh, it's put out by XYZ Films. And um, like I said, it's very polarizing. There, uh, People are completely split down the center. I haven't heard an indifferent word about it. Um, people either hate it or they love it. I, I kind of... I um. I have an idea about uh, kind of like movie lovers in the 21st century. And as far as I can tell, there are people who love the witch and there are people who hate the witch. And, <laughs> and there's, there's not really a third, a third direction on that, but um, right, there is no gray area. <laughs> yeah. So you agree with that statement then? Definitely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I cool. Agree with that. Would you say that there, are there any trends uh, currently in, um, and horror or weird fiction that you've been picking up on that have gained ground or maybe have fallen by the wayside in the last few years? Oh my gosh, yes. So many, actually. Um, so I have noticed that um, horror, even in the mainstream horror, is kind of leaning more toward that like kind of magical realism and uh, bringing in like fairy tale elements. And then I'm not sure if you saw Hereditary. Uh, I haven't yet. I haven't yet. That's That was kind of on my list with Mandy. And um, there's a third one that I've missed out on, and I can't remember what it was, but that's another polarizing one where I haven't heard a third way. People hate it or they love it. I absolutely loved it. And I think that um, was a little bit of an extreme example of how people are kind of using – uh, trauma and tragedy as horror. I see. And I really love that, obviously, because that's totally um, in in my ballpark. I think I just um, I think it's it's awesome that we're kind of taking um, relatable experiences. And I've always kind of said that uh, writing is kind of like putting a a note in a bottle. Uh, like an SOS and sending it out into the world and and waiting to see who who reads it and is like I feel this way too, so it's exciting to see horror kind of dealing with um personal like traumas and experiences like that. Do you think that um do you think that's kind of a divisive thing? It seems like um I've heard a lot of talk about um, with. I think it might be you, Jennifer. Uh, Andrew said he could he'd hear us just fine, so I'm not sure. Def- we'll keep an eye on that, but um, uh, but apparently we can be heard just fine, other than your technology. But we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully they can hear us fine. But uh, I've had some uh, some questions and some statements. But um, 
it seems like I've I've seen some talk about um, kind of like the the magical. Um, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to it's difficult to characterize it without kind of falling into some sort of slur territory. But it seems like when like a, especially in a child in a film has some sort like in there in the spectrum, or if they have some kind of chromosomal defect, like they tend to be the ones like that are touched by the yeah, by the other I'm side actually, and stuff. I'm really hoping that that starts to fall away. Um, I'm, uh, like, consi- I'm considered, like, disabled, and I just sort of feel like, as a disabled person, it's like, we're so tired of, like, being your magical, like, savior <laughs> in the movies, <laughs> um, so I think in, that's sort of something that I think society sort of started to realize that, um, like, all their characters should be well-rounded not just one thing oh sure yeah especially since i mean it's it's really difficult especially now to characterize um anyone with any sort of um difference it's difficult to say it's definitely this it's definitely that there's usually kind of like bits and pieces of one thing bits and pieces of everything especially like with their experience and like you said trauma there's all sorts of things adding to the to the quilt of someone's experience so um, you yeah. can't really you can't really chalk it off to one thing or another, especially since they they also uh, have used that um, race wise in the past as well, the mystical yeah. Asian or you know the uh, for the one that kind of springs to mind for me was like Poltergeist two, with that um, gigantic chief uh, guy from <laughs> from the, one floor of the cuckoo's it, nest. Yeah, that's a, I think that's that's the one probably everybody thinks of. Um, I haven't watched that in a million years. Um, Poltergeist, the first one, is my all-time favorite. Yeah, we don't talk about remakes around here. Well, maybe some. Maybe (laughs) some. There are some that work. I don't have a problem with remakes. I don't understand this, like, automatic hatred for the remake. Well, I'll I'll be... But see, uh, don't get me wrong now. Don't get me wrong, because um, I don't automatically have a hatred for the remake, um, especially since... um, I mean, the thing from the '80s—that's that's a remake, and I enjoyed that a whole lot. I enjoyed the remake of the Manchurian Candidate, and that it just—it's one of those things where when a remake comes out, you kind of, for me anyway, per, personally, I totally treat it with all kinds of caution, and it's kind of on the firing line. And then if yeah. it, you know, I mean, especially, I mean, I'm always of the opinion that if something is really done right the first time, if you remake it, you have to improve it. And if you just well, kind of, I like, re-replicate it or, you know, whatever. It was, like, right after you and I first met, and I went, I was so excited for the Poltergeist remake. <laughs> and you remember, like, I took my whole family to see that on, like, my birthday. I can't remember what the aftermath and of that was. It was horrible. <laughs> I ranted on Facebook for like two days. I was so angry and disappointed. Oh God! <laughs> it was awful. Um, and I still am, for the most part, willing to give remakes a chance. But I do somewhat temper my excitement now because I was so stoked for that, and then it was just within five minutes of the opening. I realized, like, their timing was going to be all off, and 
it just it just didn't work. None of it worked very well. Well, I love me some Sam Rockwell, so I was kind of pissed yeah. that I didn't get to watch that because I I just had a feeling in my gut that it wasn't going to be worth a damn. And Sam I've... Rockwell is awesome, and I still love him. Um, Moon, right? There's nothing he could do about that that movie being awful. <laughs> what about Moon? You like Moon? I just watched Moon for the first yes. time. All right. Like two or three days ago. That's crazy that you just brought that up. That That's a good flick. Oh, yeah. I, I recommend that to everybody. But, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking to Brooke Wara, weird fiction horror writer. Um, and she, she mentioned, you know, when we first met. And I think it's kind of important to bring that up. Uh, we had met, uh, what was the name of the, po- or not the podcast, but what was the site that I just kind of happened upon? And uh, there was, I think if I remember right, they were having sort of like a a volley, like a right back and forth in the comments of some posts where someone would start a story and then someone would pick it up at one point and write a little bit. That's, I mean, that's what we were, that's how we met, wasn't it? Yes, in Horror Fanatics. And uh, so that was a group on Facebook and... I think the first time you and I actually spoke was you had posted kind of one of those what would you do if you saw this staring at you kind of pictures, and it was a horrifying photo. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't I, surprise me. And I, I, it's, but you remember it's me saying this, and I'm even though I'm a horror writer, I'm, like, terrified of everything. Yeah. And I think I probably told you, like, take this down. It's giving me nightmares. Or yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I think that I, I think I may have even kept it up even a little bit longer than I would have. But it was just a mischievous, you know, thing. But, but <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, we would get on these uh, incredible volleys where uh, I would write one piece of a story, she would write one piece of a story, and then just like th- through the night into the early morning and stuff like that, and you know. Yeah, and then that I, was a lot of and then I found out about uh, the stories that she was putting out there to everyone. And um, what would you say? Uh, what was the first story you ever wrote? Um, the first horror story I wrote was Sleepyhead, um, which and I, remember, I yeah. sent to you at that time. Um, and I think you've pretty much beta read almost everything I've written since then. Pretty awesome. Like, what does Corey think about this? <laughs> and before yeah, I send it anywhere, every every once in a great while, um, I have I get a new person in in my life that that asks me to do that for him every once in a great while. But um, I remember um, I remember bits and pieces of Sleepyhead uh, um, because it, it's one of those ones like with a magical reality where you can totally uh, you remember this little girl in your class anyone who would read this would remember this little girl in their class and to see kind of like what her fate ended up being in and what uh what the the um her inclinations were and and what were the repercussions of what had happened to her and how she happened to other people um it was totally fascinating did that ever end up in uh any publications yeah it ended up in uh under the bed I think it was volume three. And then just this past year, it was on, I think, the Wicked Library podcast again. Um, So that was cool. I got to hear it as a podcast. 
um, in addition to seeing it in print. And that's always super fun because, you know, podcasts will take your story and add music and actors, and it's like a whole new piece after that. So it was. it's always really fun to see kind of what other artists are going to do with your story. Oh, and uh, we have a question from Jennifer. Uh, she's asking about... Uh, if there are any, what if any popular genre or author that you most sympathize with? Oh man, that is like, well, I'm thinking, so I'm thinking, Char- <laughs> I'm thinking like somewhere in between. Like, if we're talking about the the known authors and not kind of on the indie tip, I was thinking Charles DeLint was probably in there somewhere. Um, you know, it's funny because um, it's uh, a lot of my favorite authors anymore are, you know, like. Gwendolyn Keist or Nadia Bolkin, and they're both weird fiction horror writers, like in my same, you know, community. Um, but I kind of think people are always a little taken aback that actually, um, even though horror is my favorite genre, I really love Charles Bukowski. Of course. And I really love Kurt Vonnegut. And I probably am more influenced by them. I know that I at least, um, I just love everything, every word well, they've I, written. I've noticed that, um, especially among the most seasoned horror writers, it seems like they very rarely, I mean, not rarely, but I would say that the, um, the majority of what they read and what they're influenced by isn't horror. Uh, I would say that it was right. mostly like, um, like, uh, not even necessarily fantasy, like maybe something like, um, not not Steinbeck. I'm not looking for Steinbeck, but something like maybe like uh, Flannery O'Connor or some sort of. Uh, I mean, in this case, you could say that Shirley Jackson kind of like crosses genre, every genre that you could possibly think of. She kind of like oh, yeah. melds she, into she and, and falls out of with, with everything she does. So I think that especially when you're dealing with like the magical reality aspect of what you're talking about and kind of like the fantasy in the everyday world i think that just focusing just uh, focusing on horror or fantasy is going to kind of limit your scope uh when it comes to yeah, the emotional absolutely. the emotional framework and fabric of of people and when you have that yeah, locked so, in like, you know so it's so important like i'm teaching uh creative writing at the local college out here and I'm doing a dark fiction class next semester, and um, I, it's, like, so important, I think, especially when you're doing genre writing. Yeah. Um, and probably especially in horror, to really portray, like, the heartbreak or, like, the ugliness in a, maybe a character's experience or just kind of maybe, like, an embarrassing moment and I think I find the inspiration for that a lot in uh writers like Bukowski that like aren't afraid to just tell it how it is. Oh and sure. And like wanna bring that into the horror genre because it's it's entertainment first and foremost. You know, that's that's what writing is. You're entertaining and that's that's okay. But you're also your job is to like connect with your reader. And I think that if you're bringing in, like, those emotions and, like, kind of that 
maybe stuff we don't really always want to talk about into the work, then you're connecting with your reader more. Absolutely. Um, Oh, I have uh, Josh DeForge of the Running Scared uh, Motion Picture Group. Uh, he said that he's going to hit you up, and he wants to buy a signed book and uh, and review it on his podcast as well. So, <laughs> right. I'll I'll, uh, I'll send you some information on Josh. He's um he's a huge booster uh, of the indie horror, uh, indie fiction of all kinds, bizarro fiction, and uh, and fledgling filmmakers and fledgling authors and stuff. So, I'll make sure to give you his information. Uh, really, really super super guy so um let's see uh jennifer saying that the avid reader the avid reader and jennifer definitely falls into that category she she is voracious um horror reading is leaf at least half of what you call classic literature so she's probably talking yeah. about like the gothic like you can get into like the rebecca the daphne de mornier or uh right or like the monk um or things like that uh have you ever read, have you ever read oh, Gormenghast? I have not. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, trilogies that people are constantly uh, suggesting to me, and it's in that uh, gothic vein. But how long have you been uh, doing the the college class now? Um, almost a year. That's wonderful. Yeah, almost a year. Do you have yeah, any? It's fun. I remember we had spoken about um about the curriculum and how. That was kind of grinding on your mind. Did that end up working out good? <laughs> it did. Um, I was so nervous about it, you know, because I'm like, well, I just published my little short stories. And and you know how writers always kind of, we have uh, imposter syndrome, I think every single one of us. And so I'm like, I was just thinking, like, what am I going to get up in front of all these people and talk about this stuff? Like, I even know what I'm doing. And then, um, and then I got my first class, and we just had a lot of fun um, because it's mostly like just this discussion. And then, uh, so I, the class is usually five or six weeks long, and then I just walk them through writing a flash piece, and they pick where they're going to submit. And by the end of the course, we all submit our stories together. Oh, that's to, exciting. Did you have a super fun? Did you have one in particular that you were submitting to, or just whatever you thought that most fit uh, the piece that somebody was doing? I help them kind of figure out where where they're going to send it. Um, most of the people who are, have been taking my classes so far, because it's like kind of a general writing class, have been writing uh, sort of like essays and memoir style. So I sort of had to uh, learn really fast uh, some things about that market because i'm not you know i'm like a horror writer and they're like well i have this essay about the summer i was 12 and i'm like (laughs) okay i can totally help you find a home for that yeah (laughs) sure i mean you know it's and that and that could easily uh i mean there stephen king wouldn't exist if there wasn't horror in the in the child if there wasn't any i mean if if a child's beginnings wasn't one of wonder and complete terror at most of the mundane things that we deal with on a daily basis. But yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> but um, yeah. So yeah. But with, when it's like speaking of the child, like um, tell us about, um, tell us about heirloom. It was, uh, it was featured last year in the dim shores anthology looming low part, uh, part one. Yes. Yeah. So that was, um, 
that was a really fun project to be a part of. It was kind of like this massive project. They had 26 authors, so 26 stories in one anthology. Yeah, it was huge. And um, and then it it debuted at uh, Necronomicon. Oh man, in 2017. Perfect. Good <laughs> God, so that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I flew out there for the um, for the the debut, and then um, we all got to do our readings and stuff. That's when I met Peter Straub. Oh um, wow! By accident, <laughs> and he's a really nice guy. And then uh, I've often wondered it, what he was like. He's super nice. He's very nice, very approachable. Um, I told him, I was like, my parents are never going to believe me that I actually met you. And he was like, well, let's take a picture. So I got to take a picture with him. And he was just very, just, it's kind of funny with writers because I think even like those huge names, like they don't get like how important they are. Oh, sure. (laughs) You know, you're standing there next to Peter Straub and thinking, like, oh, my God, like, ghost story. Oh, Jennifer is freaking out right now. She is freaking (laughs) out that you were sitting next to Peter Straub. It was so cool. It was, I'm still freaking out. And this was, like, a year and a half ago, and I'm freaking out that I got to meet Peter Straub. Well, I mean, ghost story is definitely in my, I mean, you know how it is. Like, it's difficult to say top 20, top 50. There are just so many, but he's definitely up in there somewhere. But uh, you are talking to a guy who has never... Never read the talisman, if you can believe that. Oh man! <laughs> oh, you gotta read that though. I mean, I I got a uh, I ended up getting a, a copy just recently of the. Um, I don't like that kind of like pared down, like when the black house when black house came out, and they pared yeah. down. Um, they took kind of like what I think of as like the Stephen King font of like the the eighties when they took the. Right. And kind of like the the Nike swoosh talisman thing in the center. When they got rid of that, yeah, and they just kind of put type on there. Uh, I I wasn't a big fan of that addition, so I I searched around for the original <laughs> uh, Stephen King font one, and I got that, and it's just kind of sitting there waiting, waiting for me to dive. You into that. gotta read it. You gotta read it. You really do. That's a classic, man. Um, with the um. Uh, James, Big Curly, James Grant. Um, I uh, I would definitely suggest him, I and this is totally a plug for James. But um, he's asking a question. But before that, uh, if you ever need any uh, creature design, any sketch for like a a sketch illustration of some sort of creature in in your work, uh, definitely let me know. I'll I'll get James on that. But um, awesome. Uh, he's asking, what story have you written that you can say scares you? One that you put many of your own fears into, delve into the primordial fears of the readers, yes. Um, well, there there is a couple, uh, but I think, to be honest, the one that uh, just got published in Bastarian, um, <laughs> which is I Feel Better Now, is the title of, of the, that story. Um, that one kind of messed me up writing for so long that I didn't write another story for like six months. Yeesh. Yeah, I know. It's like forever. But I mean, that's powerful um, though. I mean, especially if you really dug deep into your own, you know, uh, duality and stuff like that. I mean, that when that comes out, it, I mean, it's going to take a minute. There's going to be some fallout on that. Yeah, it was uh, right around the one year anniversary of my sobriety. And I decided 
that um, I needed to write about. That kind of when I hit the one year mark, I was sort of like really angry about being sober. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't hear about that you know, a lot. It's a thing that happens. Okay. Um, you don't hear about it a lot, but then like when you're in recovery and you're like, why am I so like angry right now? People are like, oh yeah, that's that's a thing. Um, so I I sat down and uh, decided I was going to put into a story kind of um, my experience of being disabled, living with chronic pain, and also having an addiction. Like, those things can be really conflicting and confusing. And then all the people who are trying to help you, like, it's like they know that they're hurting you, but, they are, but they're trying so much to help you. And okay. I had to work that stuff out. So I wrote that. Um, and then I was completely shocked when it got into Vastarian. Um, actually, <laughs> um, that sort of gave me a panic attack because I'm like, now people are going to read this, like, incredibly personal. Uh, I turned my addiction into a horror story. And um, people are going to read it. Well, I think that um, uh, definitely I've, I've heard um, a few things this way. Uh, welcome, um Desoro and Powdery Apple and Danny thirteen one forty five, welcome. Um, we're talking to Brooke Wara, weird fiction horror writer, about her story. Uh, I feel better now it was published in Volume One, Issue Three of Vastarian, a literary journal, and how it deals with uh, the duality of disability and addiction as horror. So in this case, uh, I actually know um, the the first book that I reviewed, uh, analyzed. I, I hesitate to say review. Um, a lot of times I just kind of, kind of go through it and my, my own personal, uh, aspects that kind of, kind of came from it and, and different things. And I guess that it kind of like incidentally becomes a review, but the first book that I kind of handled on, uh, the diabolical index was porcelain by Nate Southerd and who's also a, a, oh. an old friend of mine. And, uh, I got published with him, uh, oh, last year, small in, world, uh, in uh, Strange Eons, I think we were published alongside each other. Rock on! Uh, do you remember what? Uh, <laughs> yeah. you remember what story uh, his was? Uh, let me actually have a copy. Oh man, you have it at hand. Oh, I do right Rock here. On. So, mine in there was Cherub, and Nate's was. Oh my gosh. Okay, you're talking about the beta testing. I haven't read Cherub, I don't think, have I? Are you sure you didn't read that one? Because <laughs> I feel like I fin- I stayed up until like 5 a.m. trying to write the intro to that story. And then in two hours, bam, I had this whole story done. And I thought, oh, you know what? I tried to send it to you. I couldn't get a hold of you. So I posted about it on Facebook. And that's uh... how I got into Strange Eons. Because huh. they were like... You have a story. We want to read it. But Rock his, on. Uh, so Nate's story was a taste of sugar. You know that sounds really, really familiar to me. Um, I think he he may have mentioned that uh, when we were talking about putting porcelain on, and um, and he. But but the point I was getting to was is that he had actually kind of. Um, I can't remember. I don't think it was on his blog. Um, I think he had actually posted it or. 
he may not have posted it on his author blog. I think he made a post on a personal blog, but it was kind of like a, um, I hesitate to call it a confession, but it was almost like uh, this laying out of of some uh, some secrets of his and and different things, almost like you were talking about with your story. And uh, for me, and I asked him about it uh, later on. It seemed to me that uh, despite the fear and the courage and, and just all those things kind of like laying yourself bare and, and just kind of opening yourself up. I think that if I had to guess and from what he told me and other people have told me, I think that it does nothing but help your work and uh, help people relate to you more. And, and I mean the, the fear of kind of laying, laying your chest open, I think, I think helps. I think that it kind of uh, lets people into a, a different understanding that might help them understand and, and kind of propagate, the tone of your story a little bit better around to their friends and stuff. Yeah, it's definitely the goal. It's just, I think when you're in the process of writing it, or like for me, especially after, like start counting all the ways I didn't do the story justice. <laughs> um, and it's just so hard to look at your own stuff and, and feel like it's any good. Um, especially when it's really emotionally charged. Yeah. And then, you know, and then other people are like, oh, we really like this. It's great. And you're like, as a writer, you're like, okay. So, so then you're getting other, you know, other, you know, offers like, hey, can you write a story for us next? And you're like, what, what <laughs> magical thing <laughs> in that story is it that they actually like? Because now I have to replicate that. Oh God. oh God! But <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's I, I think that's kind of rarely. I mean, it does happen. It definitely happens. But I think that uh, most of the time, if if you give something that's truly from you, and it, it, you don't try too hard, you just be yourself and and do what you normally would have done. I think that yeah. it's going to have that that thread of authenticity throughout it, and it's going to have whatever quality they liked in the other one, it's going to have it anyway without trying too hard to replicate it anyway. I think it's, that's absolutely true, actually. It's like, it, even if you're not going to some, like, deep emotional spot, if nothing else, if you're at least having, like, a really good time writing it, like, I'm sure you've read books and stories where you're like you can tell oh yeah that the author was just having so much fun oh it's a blast writing that yeah. story absolutely oh i kind of feel um, that way when i read the gunslinger and a lot of that's another polarizing <laughs> oh i, I had, don't like i had somebody series. i had someone flat out tell me that they um it was so funny because i thought that because they were talking about they said the dark tower series they they didn't say you know well, the Dark Tower and talking about the Gunslinger or saying the Dark Tower and talking about the Drawing of the Three. They, so they knew a little bit about what they were talking about. So I figured that, if anything, they were going to say that they couldn't quite get behind Wizards and Glass or one of the later ones where he's like throwing everything at it in the kitchen sink. But they said they hated the Gunslinger. And, I, and all I could think of was, basically what I told them was, I, I'm not going to, I try, it doesn't always work. But I try not to like attack someone for hating something. What I normally do in this case, anyway, it it was kind of convenient because I was just like, "Do me a favor. Why don't you read the next two and tell me if you still hate it? You know, as a as the linking three of the the first the the I mean you can't call it a trilogy, but the first three of the Dark Tower series. If you hated the Gunslinger." 
go forward two more and then if you still hate it then i can i can get behind that i guess but um i loved i definitely love those three i have i need to uh, revisit the first three, and then I need to go all the way, and I've never gone all the way. I I listened I, to a lot I of stuff and like I that. can't. I got I think three or four books in. I actually didn't care for the series, but I love the first book. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I feel like it really comes across the page that he was having a really good time writing that. And there is a um, there's at least one short story and then another novella that he did um the short story is in one of his short story collections that's actually um kind of a a story that takes place at the at the same time that the gunslinger does where roland's like in that was that like that little abandoned town with like the i was gonna mention is that tall is that tall is that tall I can't remember or what no the way. name of it is. You're talking about the Muties, right? Is that yes. like the Muties? Okay. Um, yeah, I, there's I can't a remember. short story in one of his collections. It's like he's in that town and he ends up getting hurt and these witches uh, kind of take him into their coven and they're and they're mending him back to health, but I Ooh. can't tell you any more about it. Oh, wow. Because um, you have to read the story. And I love that story, too. I just couldn't get into uh, the series after a while because I have to agree with some people where it's like you kind of get to a point in the series where it's like, and then suddenly there's a bear with chainsaw hands. Well, see, you know, I, I, I what I've had to do with that, um, with the the place where, that gave me the bad taste in my mouth, and maybe it shouldn't because I guess it's happened in the past, but when I heard that he had written himself into it as himself – like, you know, maybe there was some kind of cathartic thing he was doing, like, after the van crash and all that kind of stuff. But the, right. the the thought of that just made me think that someone somewhere told him that he was the Mark Twain of the 21st century and he believed it. And then that's what <laughs> that that's where that came about. And but I mean, I'm probably judging too harshly. Um, I really judge Stephen King harshly because uh, because of some of the, the stuff in the past that I've really, really connected with. And then, uh, stuff I think that, and it's, it's sad. It really sucks because it just so happens to fall after his sobriety where I'm just like, yeah, you know, you're going like Lizzie's story. I cannot stand. So it's like, I couldn't get through that one either. Yeah. So, but, uh, before I get too far along and I missed this thread, um, uh, TJ from Heckles and Horror, yeah, our, our uh, horror film uh, review show. He's asked, asking if there is a website website specifically or a link to purchase your work from. Um, so I have brookwara dot com, um, and I don't have um, a link to Vastarian up there yet, but um, that is available on Amazon. I'm in uh, issue one volume three um and i'll go through everything else is up there i'll go through the list of uh i'll go through some of the list at the at the end of the the show so i can reiterate that and people can look around for it but yeah, yeah. um tj was also talking about he said um i feel like the mood you're in while while writing really affects the outcome he said uh you can tell that a writer had so much fun while writing you can feel it you can also tell the writer wasn't feeling it when reading reading, reading certain things too so it makes me wonder if that's kind of like uh contract 
you know, obligations. And when sometimes that happens, you read that kind of thing. Yeah, actually, um, I feel like that is kind of a coin you flip in the air um, because a lot of us will say, you know, like, I work best under a deadline. And then I think that I would crunch time and it's like, you know, this feverish flurry of writing and and so inspired or whatever. Um, But then there's there are definitely those times where um, you put it off too long and you didn't outline it ahead of time or you didn't plan, you know, anything for it. And you're kind of maybe you've got other stuff going on and you have you have to like kind of go to some emotional place and and like drag the story out of yourself and and so i feel like waiting until that deadline is really pushing it because you don't know if you're really going to get that inspired or if you're just going to be stressed out but when you force this story i think forcing anything in writing it always comes across to the reader always but, but wouldn't you say that uh sometimes you can also find like a font of inspiration that way too almost like that that quote yeah. you know like the the prospect of being hanged like contracts the mind wonderfully or something like that you know where you're under the gun you might come up with something that you may have been too inhibited to do before you know no so i've had it both ways where it's like there's times i wait until the night before a deadline and five thousand words comes flying out and it's all really great and i'm happy with it and then there's times I do that, and the next morning I've got to turn it in, and I'm like, oh, God, this is so forced. But I, more often than not, it's the kind of that thrilling, sort of inspiring feeling that you get waiting until the last minute. Um, you know, kind of on that, that tip a little bit, um, with Heirloom, and the uh, the Dim Shores anthology, which uh, Jennifer, you might be interested in this. I don't know if you're still around. Hopefully, you're still around because uh, the Dim Shores anthology was that uh, looming low number one. That was actually nominated for the uh, Shirley Jackson Award. So, yeah, I mean that's that's gotta be good. That's gotta be fulfilling, knowing that you're at least nominated for an award named after Shirley Jackson. Yeah. That was, um, I remember thinking when I first started out that um, I would set the the Shirley Jackson Award as sort of like the ultimate goal. Yeah. And of course it was like this collaborative project, you know, Sam Cowan and Justin Seal from, uh, well, Justin's with Strange Eons now, but at the time they were putting this together for Dim Shores and... To find out, you know, we were, as a collective, nominated for the Shirley Jackson. Like, that was pretty incredible. I actually flew out to Boston for the award ceremony. Because you were coming from Arizona, (laughs) right? Um, Actually, I'm up in the Northwest now. But but at that time... You never know where I'm at. No, no I, was, I was up here. I went. I flew from here. I got married last year. So well, I, I know that. Here. Actually, I meant to tell you congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. So my husband was uh, near St. Louis. So I flew over there. We spent a few days together, and then he and I took a train to Chicago, and then from Chicago we flew to Boston for the. It was the awards were at ReaderCon this last summer. Okay. 
And um, that was just a really fun time. We got to spend three days in Boston. Um, I got to see Gwendolyn Keist and Nadia Bolkin and John Langan, who wrote The uh, the Fisherman. Okay. I don't know if you've read that, but it is so good. It's totally meta. It's like a story within a story within a story told, like, passed down through all these fishermen. It's really good. <laughs> I think I've least um, heard of it. <laughs> I'm sure you have it won a Stoker a couple of years ago. Well, I, I tend to, I mean, like, and I've said this before, I don't know if this has like an elitist vein running through or whatever, but most of the time, the more, the more people nominate or the more people rave about something in like a wide, uh, in some sort of wide published thing, I usually avoid it. And then like with House of Leaves, uh, every, every, oh. every, <laughs> I, I knew see every time I say House of Leaves to anyone who reads there I was like, Oh and, Oh, that's like the only response. And I, I have to admit that with that one, um with that one, it ends up being such an experience that I think kind of like putting it in, in that kind of vein, I, I think that that ought to have its own realm. I think that saying that it kind of um it sets this new standard for for writing and stuff. I I think that that falls short. I think that with something like that, it's more of a um, it's more of a puzzle and it's more of a quest, um, and it's beyond readership. So when they say it's kind of like the greatest, you know, the this greatest mystery and all this kind of stuff, I I kind of tune out slightly. Um, and with with something like that, I I kind of wait for the hype to to disappear, and then I. I'll try it out because I'm afraid I'm, I don't I know. I tend to do that too. Honestly, a lot of the time I'll do that. And then, and then everybody's talking about it and I don't have anything to say. And then I'll finally get around to, to reading whatever everybody's all excited about. So that <laughs> would you, I would definitely you recommend, I think you would really love that book. I know. And, and I've been told that so many times because like, I know just by by looking at what it is and seeing what it is, I know that that would be something that would, it was so sumptuous to my character that I would totally eat my words, and I can't wait to do that. I cannot yeah. wait to be wrong. But uh, I guess that I'm at a point where, especially with my own creating and stuff, I think that I would prefer not to even experience that until I get like a good – I don't know until I can properly judge, I guess. But um, well, and if you're gonna read House of Leaves, it's like you gotta block out a week, you know. I mean, are, <laughs> do you really call, call it reading it? It's right. It's it's kind of like you're studying. Yeah, right. Which I don't mind yeah. that. I mean, I, don't don't get me wrong. I don't mind that at all. Um, I I love finding um, uh, writers of the 18th century where I'm having to annotate. Or like a fine annotation or whatever, but it it totally cracks me up that you were victim to scholarly peer pressure, where you had to <laughs> in order to be able to like converse properly about uh, uh, the state of fiction and and the framework of current writing and all that kind of stuff, and you haven't experienced it yet, so you have to go back home and and crunch so you can you know so you can yeah, hang hang okay, with the big so, boys. So it's true though because like. I'm writing horror, and I've been this last, like, year and a half or so, like, showing up at conventions and, you know, getting, you know, interviews here and there. And and then it's, like, funny because people will bring up stuff like, 
H.P. Lovecraft, and I'm like, I've honestly never read an H.P. Lovecraft story, and I know that people want to, like, excommunicate me from the horror community because I'm terrible about some of this stuff. Well, you know, I um, I think that especially now, I wanted to reiterate, we're talking to Brooke Wara, a weird fiction and horror writer about her about her accolades and her uh her likes dislikes and her uh, her view um but i think that with especially now with uh i mean i guess you could say that we're almost at the the cliche end of lovecraftian stuff um i think that it was virtually unknown for years i mean it, it was known for a long time and then it was unknown and then something and a bunch of a few people managed to bring it back into the light and then all of a yeah. sudden all of a sudden within the last i'd say 15 years maybe 20 years it just exploded out of control where people were just like stapling tentacles to everything um and then yeah. uh and, and it's cool though because like i'm i still haven't ever read uh, I have a book of H.P. Lovecraft stories. I haven't gotten a chance to sit down and read it. To be honest, I'm reading a lot of um, new authors the last few years, so that's that's what I'm reading mostly. But I do enjoy um, Lovecraftian stories, which can be great. People who aren't Lovecraft, <laughs> which which can be great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's. It's definitely one of those things where there's um, there's kind of a there can be clicks that occur, <clears throat> and sometimes people there ends up being a debate about what's Lovecrafting and what isn't, and yeah. with um, a lot of the Lovecrafting writers that don't talk about themselves as Lovecrafting writers, just kind of like um, uh, I've always said that you know with uh, <laughs> if. Th- if you have a song, the more times they, I mean, and this is of course like the genre is obvious and, uh, I'm kind of subjected to it on the way to work. I carpool now, but, um, the more someone says the word, when the more someone says the word country in a song, the less country it becomes. So, right, so, right, right. so that, that and all is kind of like with the Lovecrafting thing. But if you can manage to find that kind of like that tone and, the the thread um what is going on here jennifer is asking who are you asking how old are you how how all are maybe she's speaking i think she might be doing talk to text here how old are you (laughs) how old are all of us what does that matter are 65 year olds reading modern horror i don't know what she's talking about oh yeah uh i just want to really quick recommend to you oh i see what she's uh, saying Star Creek by Nathan Carson, which is like, I don't think I've ever heard him actually call himself Lovecraftian, but he wrote this novella called Star Creek and it's like, well, if, well, if I may, if I may, drugs and rock and roll, it's raunchy and fun and amazing. I think that, um, definitely the title there, I think that says it all where he, he managed to find a, t- a title where he's thinking of the backwoods and the cosmos at the same time. So yeah. S- Star Creek is has has that in a nutshell. 
So, but if you're saying yeah, that it's, it's kind of like this modern definitely all, event. like, it takes place kind of in the backwoods of of the state of Oregon. So I already loved it because it's, like, takes place in the Pacific Northwest. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but I read it uh, about a year ago, and I think I might have even texted you about, like, you got to read this book. It's super fun. Um, it's a novella, so it's, like, totally a one-night read. Um, but I just, he's awesome and I'm excited for anything else he's doing, but I know that music is really his big thing. So he's not putting out a lot of fiction because he's, he works with his band and everything, but, um, what's the name of the band? By, I can't remember the name of his band. I should totally know that. Uh, okay. Well, um, uh, but the Lovecraftian thing, I, uh, I spoke last, my first podcast back, I ended up talking about uh, a study in in Emerald by Neil Gaiman, where it's Sherlock Holmes uh, era Lovecraftian story, and um, it's it is so wonderful. It totally tricked me. It completely yeah. tricked me. And there's nothing I love more. It's so funny. Um, I was looking around and. And Mel was like, what are you grinning like an idiot for? And I was like, I totally got roped in and completely bamboozled by this story. I was so happy. There's <laughs> there's nothing I love more, especially since in this, like, there's an unreliable narrator. But he doesn't mean to be oh, unreliable. But that's the thing, though. It was a graphic novel version of it with fantastic art. And... um. And the best part was is that somehow it managed to be uh, unreliable, but it didn't know it was unreliable because it wasn't trying to trick you. It was all of your own assumptions as kind of like a a Sherlockian fan um, while reading it and then based in kind of like this this Lovecraftian world. Um, And at the end, I was totally wrong. I was completely wrong. And I couldn't have been happier to be wrong because there's there's nothing that shows mastery more than uh, someone who reads so much of both genres right. that you're going for. And I totally got taken to the cleaners. I was so happy. Yeah, I love it when that happens. I think after, especially if you're an avid reader, it's like you you can kind of start you get a little bit. I yeah. Don't know. I mean, Sometimes I, I get a little bit too big for my britches, I guess, and I'm like, well, I got this all figured out, and then they surprise me. Yeah, it's such a treat. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Tell me about um, uh, the Wicked Library podcast. Uh, the Wicked Library is uh, amazing people. So that is run by Dan Foytick, who also produces the list. Um. And I think Nelson Piles is also a producer on the Wicked Library. And it's essentially a showcase for horror writers. So they are great in the way that they will accept stories that have already been published. So, Oh, that's rare. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of an awesome thing to kind of be able to, you know, they'll get a hold of me every now and then. And they're like, what do you got for us? And I can send them something that was maybe published four years ago, and it gets a whole new audience. And like I said, they, they do the podcast with the music and the actors. And they just, um, I think it was the Halloween special this year, they um, they did in their anthology uh, episode, uh, do you remember the Twisted 
tale of Vernon, the twisted end of Vernon Boggs. I don't even know. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so they have a character on the Wicked Library called the Librarian, and he's very much a Tales from the Crypt, Crypt Keeper style character, and he will every once in a while read one of the stories. On okay. the Wicked Library. Not every time, but every once in a while. And he narrated the Twisted End of Vernon Boggs. And it was so much fun oh, I bet to that listen was to. Awesome. I bet that was awesome. Yes. So, I mean, I guess I should, because you know uh, what I'm talking about. This story, for people who don't know, was about a, a shut-in whose property has been bought out. It's kind of vague. Basically, they're putting a freeway through where he lives, and so he, um, in protest, <laughs> like, essentially trudges out into the woods, and he's going to lay down in the moss and the muck and and not be moved again. Yeah. And uh, I think, looking back, I'm like, because uh, you know, like, there was, like, three years that I spent, like, not leaving my house. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I eventually caught over that, and now I'm out in the world and out and about all the time. But I think when I was writing that, I was kind of working through some of that. But it was also, like, really visually, like, visually a fun story to write. But in the end there, um, for your listeners, Burden is enchanted by the forest, and the forest turns him into a tree. And it's very graphic and violent in the end. You know, it's interesting that it's interesting that you use the word enchanted because, um, to me, that has such a lilting. Um, that's such a bright, like to me, the word enchanted rarely has a dark uh, intonation. <laughs> right, so I it's see, really I could probably say he's cursed. <laughs> but but I don't know. I think but... I think that kind of goes along the lines of um, I was thinking of. Um, of really, really great villains in, in horror history and, and different kind of fantastical history. And uh, I heard, I, re- I saw a video of the best lines, of Pinhead's best lines, and he said, uh, you know, demons to some, angels to others. So I think that that's kind of the same thing with the enchantment, where it's like, you could call it a curse, and that has some of the aspect to it, but is that his point of view? Does he feel... I mean, if you walked into the woods and all of a sudden the woods, they were actually trying to become part of your transcendence or whatever, like, would that be enchantment then? But from the outside looking in, it would definitely appear to be a curse. So I think that's right. Cause it, it's, like it's all like there. It's horrible, like painful transformation that happens. But in a way, he gets exactly what he wants. He doesn't want to be moved anymore. So I guess it just depends on perspective. And it could be even like parts of your life. I was um, I was talking to someone, and I I think we were talking about movies at the time. But the same thing goes for books and stories as well. Um, uh, James is asking about the uh, the Vernon Bog story. Is that is that in the Lift uh, book? Um, no, actually, the Lift book that they just that just released is um, so all the. Pretty much, I think everybody's the original writers, um, and we all wrote brand new oh, stories. Cool. Um, <clears throat> my story in that book is called uh, "Brothers Keeper," and it's essentially a 
sordid tale of two brothers that have a lot of animosity between the two of them, and they get uh, caught up with Victoria in the Ooh, building, and all okay. these family secrets come out. And that's, I think that's a... I think it's kind of like a, a galvanizing thing when you start going into like familiar things, and um, I think that can make for a lot of interesting reading. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I, I seen I write a lot about kind of especially like family relationships lately. I think because I moved home to my hometown a year and a half ago, and I hadn't been here in like twenty years. And it's absolutely gorgeous here. I'm in, like, the southernmost part of Washington State, right on the Columbia River. So just across the river from the state of Oregon. And it's so you've got it there. all. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also living uh, in my childhood home. And it's it's wonderful here, and I'm spending a lot of time with my dad, and it's awesome. But there's also a lot of my fiction the last year and a half has had a lot to do with you know family and those relationships and how they can become strained or you know and a lot of times it's it's kind of a hard place to go to especially since my father um and my mom are usually like the first people to read what i write and sometimes i'm like i'm like wait wait let me explain first <laughs> <laughs> you got to roll out the disclaimers because somehow, you know, Aunt Millie has ended up in the story somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, I guess one question that I had was um, what separates the, the Wicked Library from the Lift? Are they the same type of thing? Or are they both kind of like the dramatized versions of these stories? Is one like an only audio form and the other one is like animated or something? No, so they're both um, they're both podcasts, and they're both produced by Ninth Story Studios. Okay. Um, now the Wicked Library is just kind of a um, like a an author showcase. They do all kinds of stories. Um, sometimes an episode will be two stories by the same author, or six stories by six different authors, and they're just very good at uh, getting your work out there and promoting the writers and the list is actually a series that all takes place in the same universe. And the idea is there's this building that's kind of a magical building that appears in front of somebody when they they're facing some sort of critical choice that they have to make between whatever, you know, like they've done something and they can either make it right or they're stuck in the building forever. And Victoria is the little girl that haunts the building. Okay, so and she uh, wait. Kind of leads people. So when you're talking about the sordid tale of two brothers, Victoria is the is the ghost or whatever you'd call her the you know the kind of like the crux of the stories in the lift. Is that what you're yes. referring to? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So it would be just sort of like a Twilight Zone. Um, the list is kind of like the Twilight Zone if, if Rod Serling was Victoria and actually interacted with everybody that entered the Twilight Zone. So that's okay. what the list is like. Uh, that actually reminds me a little bit of um, uh, I interacted with Dirt Candy Productions at the last uh, Midwest Horror Fest uh, in October, and they have a, um, they have a guy... <laughs> 
it's really crazy. You could have almost written this character. Um, his name is uh, Alfie, and he um, they kind of refer to him as the creep. And he he's had two films in which he's kind of like the antagonist, but to call him a villain is, I think that's short shrift. Um, he is he's probably one of the most interesting. Uh, I it's so difficult to call him an antagonist, but I guess you have to call him an antagonist. Um, uh, she was so pretty one and she was so pretty two. um, be good for goodness sake. And then they are, um, they're kind of like putting him in the next film as a, in between that, it's kind of in between Victoria and Rod Sterling where he doesn't quite interact with the people, but he doesn't quite comment on it either. And you always see him kind of like weaving his way through the stories that are going to be in the upcoming film tales from the creep. So, uh, so it's kind of really cool. Yeah. So it's kind of that same, that same flavor there. But, um, I guess another thing I wanted to ask was, uh, we kind of, we've been blowing, blowing through a lot of these, um, accolades and stuff, but before I forgot, I definitely wanted to find out, um, what you, how you feel about, uh, one of your stories being nominated for the push cart prize. That's pretty heavy. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So that, uh, that story was, I feel better now from Bastarian. And, um, like I said earlier, I was sort of, when it, when it got published and this was just a couple of weeks ago, I kind of, I was like panicking, like, you know, now people are going to read this and it's so incredibly personal and, and I'm not sure how it is, people are going to respond to it. And then, um, and then a few days later, the editor uh, messages me, and he's like, "I just want to tell you before it gets announced that uh, we're nominating. I feel better now for the Pushcart Prize." And I'm telling wow. you, I just about fell over. I think I did fall over. I it, that is something I never even entertained the idea that anything I wrote would uh, be nominated for something like that. And a lot of, um, a lot of people get nominated. So the Pushcart Prize has been around since the seventies and it's an award for uh, short fiction and poetry um, from small presses and uh, editors can each nominate a, I think there's like a limit, a certain number of uh, stories or poems that they've published that they can nominate for this award. And then I think we don't find out until May of next year um, who the winners are. And I'm actually not even worried about it because I'm just so excited that somebody – felt like that story deserved to be nominated like that's uh he just huge i'm kind of still like i don't even know how to process it it's cool it's really cool and i think that's the best way to be i mean if you if you think that or even if you don't think that you're going to win something it seems like if you're nominated and you just kind of like forget or like move on and start doing other stuff I don't necessarily think that you're more likely to win, but it seems like it does kind of skew that direction. If you're, uh, if you agonize over something and you really worry about it, then, uh, it almost seems like it, it wouldn't possibly happen. But if you just kind of like, it just does seem like that's kind of how the universe 
if you just, uh, yeah. like to play things. If you just kind of but set I'm it honestly, aside, like just totally. Um, I just think even a nomination for these kinds of things is just that's how much better does it get, you know? Oh it's yeah, really now you can. Cool. <laughs> can you kind of like tag that on? I mean, I suppose that like especially with films. You can say that you've been nominated for an Oscar. You can say that for the rest of your life. I've seen people where it'll say like it'll it'll say the description of a movie and it'll show the actor's name and there's an asterisk and at the bottom of the thing it's it so says. It's funny though too because like in the um like the writing community it's like I have friends who have been nominated for Stokers or or even like won Stoker awards and then they're like I don't know if I should say that in my bio it feels weird and I'm like dude. You like got nominated for a stoker. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's weird. It kind of like people sort of want to apologize for promoting themselves, and it's like that's your job, man. That's well, your job as a writer. I mean, I, I've never heard of anyone like saying that they weren't nominated for a Eisner or a Hugo or anything <laughs> like that. I mean, you have to. That's. I mean, if you, it's not you saying it yourself. It's a juried group like right. it's they're they're curating so like you you get kind of shuffled in under that kind of stuff and in this case you were nominated by by someone that had to to do with the journal and stuff and that journal's uh, available on amazon by the way uh issue one or uh, sorry volume one issue three of vastarian a literary journal for the i feel better now uh push cart prize nominated story i feel better now <laughs> You, that should that always that 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 should uh, that should preface that every single time where someone says, "Hey, uh, what about your you know? Did you get a story published?" You'd be like, "Yeah, my push cart prize nominated story. I feel better now." <laughs> you gotta do it. I don't yeah, know. I just need like a recording of you saying that, then I can just play that. Yeah, just every like time you could have I that. Tell uh, somebody about the story. Whatever that contraption was that. Uh, uh, that the McAllister kid in Home Alone had Talk Boy. If you had a Talk yeah. Boy, and then you could constantly just like play that. But um, it's totally Home Alone season, right? You know, I, I haven't seen that yet. movie. I haven't seen that movie. I don't think I've seen that movie in five years or so. Oh man, why? But, it's like the Christmas movie. I keep hearing that Better Watch Out is like the horror version of Home Alone. It's, oh really? I haven't even heard of that one. I think it's about like two kids who get her their baby they're like babysat or something like that and then there's like a home invader or whatever and then they kind of like fend for themselves or whatever um and i heard it has a oh real, gotta check that out for sure i heard it's real it got a real tongue-in-cheek uh view to it and stuff so but i haven't seen that one yet i'm, I'm looking forward to it but um i always i almost always end up talking about movies but i guess they're kind of hand in hand sort of i don't know they sure. are i mean uh I think it's kind of funny uh, because I I don't think it's just me. I think a lot of horror writers, especially in, like, my age group, where, like, we grew up in the 80s, you know? And if you ask, you know, horror writers in this generation, like, what were your biggest influences, so many of those influences are going to be film. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... Our children's viewing in the 80s was so dark. Like, I watched The NeverEnding Story last night. Oh, yeah. Before I went to bed. <laughs> and these Nora, hands. These the hands. Thing, oh, God. Yes, these hands. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I, I, so... see, um, I see memes of the turtle head all the time. Uh, and, and, you know, they 
I can't remember what the wasn't the turtle just saying is like, oh well, I'll probably just die here, yeah. something like that. You know, I guess that's kind yeah, of like totally nonchalant about its own demise. I've lived for twenty five thousand years, <laughs> but then again, I mean, uh, I mean, Artex, right? Oh. Man, this like every kid's heart Ugh. in the whole world all broke simultaneously. But, but I'm actually kind of curious as to see um, if that if that kind of emotional um, depth kind of resonates still. Um, like I haven't shown. I don't think I've. I don't think we've watched Never Ending Story with Lucy yet. But I would like to think she's got a pretty deep emotional depth. I I would like to think that she would probably cry at the horse. She'd probably cry at the, the <laughs> kid. Like, I'd like I'd really like to see this little kid cry. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you kind of have to because <laughs> well, every... it's a staple of childhood too. She totally needs to see it. It's a great movie. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, especially since like um. I brought the Princess Bride into their lives for the first time ever in their lives. I was like, that what is, is happening? Crazy. What is happening? But I think that sometimes, <laughs> kind of like with the um, the disillusion of like the HBO after school type of deal, I think that yeah. that since that's kind of gone by the wayside, um, because, I mean, it was in rotation, like all kinds of stuff, Monster Squad. Uh, I mean, uh, there was all types of stuff that was playing just nonstop constantly that uh, I was able to see. And now there's so um, there's so many options that there's a lot. There's so many options that that very rarely is is anything ever paid attention to. I mean, it's it, the, I got to tell you, though, I had this like, you know, how sometimes you'll kind of remember something from childhood and you're like, was that real or like some weird fever dream that I had? You know, because it's so bizarre that you're like, there's no way that was a kid's movie. Well, I kept talking about this cartoon that really messed me up as a kid. And I couldn't remember exactly what about it was so horrifying. Oh, God, I have to know. And my husband was like, it's Unico, the unicorn. From like 1983, I think, or something. You can actually find it on YouTube, I think, now. And uh, I'm not sure where else you can get a hold huh? of these movies, but. Still I'm still hearing it. Oh, we're freezing up. Where do you think we got lost? I mentioned Artex, the whole thing goes to shit. <laughs> We just opened an emotional vortex. Is what happened? Okay. Yeah, Andrew's gonna run upstairs and and make sure. Yeah, no kidding, right? Um, but just in case anyone can hear us, I'm not even sure now. But um, I don't know. But you have to go back and like revisit Unico, and you might not know what I'm talking about because it was it's so obscure. But like Unico the unicorn, and I would suggest you view it before you introduce. Lucy to it. <laughs> is <laughs> it like it is messed up? It's like mind melting. Yeah, it's like this. Uh, it's like early eighties uh, kind of anime, um, full full movie length uh, cartoon out of uh, I can't remember which part of Asia, but it is. Wait a second. I'm pretty sure it's Japanese. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> Are you sure you're not referring to the last unicorn? 
No, I know The Last Unicorn because I watch that all the time. This is Unico the Unicorn, and it is okay. really bizarre, super uh, creepy, the uh-huh. scariest We're villain good. you've ever seen in a children's Okay, movie. Uh, we, we might be back. Am I about to share again? Huh? Am I sharing again? No, no, no. We never like lost. Okay, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> if in case in case someone got a, a little dip in the in the uh, the audio uh, or both, I don't know. You're probably happy to get my ugly face off of everything. But uh, with the uh, we are speaking with Brooke Wara, weird fiction horror writer. Uh, the she has been nominated for the <laughs> the Pushcart Prize for her story. I feel <laughs> better now. Now available in volume one, issue three of Vastarian. A literary journal available at Amazon, um, but we're talking about the fabulous adventure, the the fantastic adventures <laughs> of Unico, and I am not familiar. But this this doesn't even remotely look like a horse. Oh, you have to watch it though. It is the most bizarre. Like I don't know any other word to use for it other than traumatizing. Because um, I think I saw that movie once when I was. Four. Okay, I just came and, across. You know, I'm like 38 now. I just, like, <laughs> I just came across an article. Dreams about this. I just came across an article that states Unico, no question, is the most horrifying children's movie ever yes. made. They are not wrong. Holy <laughs> shit! It says no movie can compete on a sheer terror scale with the animated movies of Unico. <laughs> you so, have to watch it and just envision yourself. You know, as a young child. Andrew, see if you, <laughs> Andrew, see if you can't get uh, a text that says "sold" above my head when I'm talking about Unico, the most terrifying. I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, oh my god! So would you say, um, like you were talking about, kind of like the '80s uh, and how it was a real dark. But see, that's the thing, though. I think that. I was reading kind of like the the dark histories of I was reading Bruno Bettelheim. He wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment, and it's kind of like an analysis of uh, fairy stories and stuff. Totally fantastic. Ooh, I gotta pick that up. Yeah, it's it's kind of a major it's a major book. Like it's usually in uh, in like college courses when they're going through that kind of analysis, they have that book. But and there's another one um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll see if I can't find it and send you to it. But um, it's also about kind of like the importance of anthropomorphic animals and fairy tales and stuff. But basically the uses of enchantment was talking about like the stuff in fairy tales that have been kind of like sanitized out of it and how, yeah. um, how like the dark, the dark consequences kind of, they instill things. So if you have these eighties movies, like, I would find it hard to believe that you, I mean, my God, you think about never ending story. And like, I remember my first turn on as a kid was the, was the Southern Oracle. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was like, are you kidding me right now? So it's like, you know, <laughs> I think that, um, I think that kids are, I think we really super sanitize and sterilize for, for kids. And, um, there's a, there's a fear that, they're not going to be able to understand correctly and then they're going to get twisted or something. And I think that we, uh, well, I mean, look at how we turned out though. But, but I, but I, I, I think that, wait a second. Are you saying that kids should, <laughs> are you saying that kids, kids no, I'm, jo- I'm totally joking. I was about to um, say, are you saying the kids should be fantastically my awesome? Kids were like six and 11. 
when I sat them down to watch the claymation movie, The Adventures of Mark Twain. And how are you finding all these terrifying things? That was on Netflix for a little while. And I was like, oh, man, you guys need to sit down and watch this. And we're like halfway through the movie. And there's like a scene where like Satan is just a floating face. And he's talking about, like, the creation of humans and his own damnation. And then Whoa. there's, like, a, another scene where it's, like... Mark it's Twain? Like claymation. Yeah, that's what's weird about this movie, okay? Because you kind of aren't sure exactly what it has to do with Mark Twain, except that he does play a character. There is a character that's Mark Twain in the movie. There's a couple of his short stories that are depicted. But a lot of it is really dark and actually horrifying. So I'm like halfway through this movie with my kids, and they're like 6 and 11, I think. Good Lord. Maybe 7 and 12. And they're like, why are we watching this? <laughs> and I was like, look, my dad sat me down in front of this movie, and it came out in the 70s before I was born. So, like, he knew full well that it was going to, like, warp me. <laughs> or put and you I'm on like, the right and path. And now I'm passing that on yeah. to you. You got to pass and on the really war. It's it's still it's dark and it's weird and it's bizarre, but they like the movie. It's just it's very strange. I mean, the other night, there's no doubt about it. Um, we were doing. Um, what the hell are we doing? It seems like we were doing. Maybe it was Thanksgiving. It seems like we were giving out presents, though. I don't know what happened. I always get these. <laughs> I get all these holidays screwed up. But um, all the kids were there, and. Uh, Somehow the Wizard of Oz was on, and it had been a long time since I had seen it. So we watched that, and after it was all over, I was like, "You two have got to see Return to Oz." <gasps> yes. And and she was like, "What the hell's that?" And I was like, "It is the darkest Dorothy story that's ever existed, and it is completely awesome. Everyone should yes. watch Return to Oz." Uh, I got this big clamshell VHS version of it, and it's just, like, wonderful. So, but, yeah. That, yeah, that's that, a good one. That one's definitely in my, my Amazon library that I'm, like, collecting the world's best movie collection. I just recently added the Twilight Zone movie. Um, Very proud of that. I have to say that um, that is, a, I think, kind of beyond what anyone could have ever guessed, especially in my case. Um that completely tears my guts apart when I watch that movie. Um, yeah. The kick the can is uh, just like, oh, my God. Yeah. It's like, how so, about stab the shit out of my feels while you're at it? <laughs> it? It really is. And I think that's kind of goes back to, like, like I think we, we were talking about, like, current horror writers. Or a lot of the influence came from, like, the – films and movies of that era and a lot of it is about it's pretty serious stuff like our own you know fear of our own mortality or even just aging or being abandoned like there's a lot of heavy uh topics that get dealt with in those movies. Well, I mean, and then it's not just horrifying. Like there is a lot of magic that happens in those films. And it's, I think it was heavily influential 
on an entire generation of artists. Well, I think the thing is kind of kind of like stick out and you start picking up threads because like I hadn't told you about this that yet, but the reason why I was off the podcast and I was out of the bookshop and I was hiding under my covers, um, my mom passed away in uh, uh, October 15th or something like that, just out of nowheresville. So like now when I'm watching stuff, I just see cremation and everything. I guess it's kind of like the yeah. same, it's same. It's the same thing where like you, you go through a breakup and then every single damn song that's everywhere is all about, is you just see love everywhere. So it's, it's kind right. of the same thing, but in that same vein, like how we're talking about like the eighties, um, the eighties, uh, influence and stuff. How do you think this kind of like a uh, pseudo eighties, um, revival stuff like the stranger things aspect. And, uh, it seems like, like summer of 84, that movies came out and I'm really interested in seeing that where they're kind of like distilling the, uh, the flavor of the eighties onto, but, but kind of like seen through the lens of like modern sensibilities and stuff. Like, do you think any of that is going to influence? Do you think it'll influence in the same way, or do you think it'll be tempered in a 21st century vein? I think it's you know it's it's nostalgia, so it is it is tempered. I think, and and that's fine Um, because I think what's coming out of that a lot is, uh, you know, like my kids' generation is now interested in all these things like that came out of that era and that's just really fun to like share with them Mm -hmm. um so i think it's kind of renewing like an interest but it is uh it's kind of funny sometimes you'll be watching something that's you know very nostalgic of the 80s and and you're kind of like were we really that nerdy (laughs) were we really all in bright red corduroy pants and well i have to say i have to say that i i've definitely seen evidence of it like especially i think where you normally see that is in like uh if if ever you're like watching a stranger things or you're watching some old 80s flick and you wonder you know like a valley girl or something and you wonder if all of those all that stuff was real go to the library and go to the archives and look in any yearbook from that era and you'll see <laughs> right. all of that stuff. So I think that, um, I think that it's important to, to bring that back. It's interesting to note that, um, especially since now, like with the, the advent of, of social media and stuff, I think knowing that your kids are never going to experience this same nostalgia the way you have, um, there are going to be things that you latched on and things that they, uh, like when they lay their experiences on top of that, it almost makes me wonder sometimes if it's purely stylistic, if they're ever going to be able to, um, relate to it. I mean, except when it comes to like the children's relationships with each other and their parents and the, and their world and all that kind of stuff. Um, it seems like specific, like every once in a while I'll, I'll watch something that's this in this kind of like nostalgic vein and the damn deja vu or whatever you would call that feeling where it hits so close to a home that you haven't seen in 30 years that you're just like, I don't know how to reconcile this. It's just so weird that you're feeling all this stuff once again. Um, 
I wonder if it'll ever have as much meaning uh, to that. I don't. I don't think so. I think it's neat to kind of experience this, like in our own age group, like we're all collectively sort of looking back and remembering, and like, well, like you said earlier, um, Stephen King. If it wasn't for how horrific and strange and mystical childhood is, you know, I don't know where a lot of really good horror would come from. So for us, it's like, you know, we're we're remembering our own childhood. And then I think for the kids, it's like maybe it's a really good movie or it's a good show. Yeah, I suppose. But I suppose. it's not quite the same emotional. You know, like there's a lot of times where I'm like, I get really excited about some nostalgic thing in a movie, even like the newer ones that are, you know, set in the 80s or whatever. And, and the kids are just like, whatever. Like, you guys don't even have the internet. Well, <laughs> um, I, I think that um, now, especially, uh, and this is this is something that will, it, it would just like destroy my brains if I even thought about it that much. But if you think about it, it was, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts. And then you have like, the resurgence of the seventies and you have the resurgence of the sixties, like in fashion and music and you have these resurgences and stuff. And then you have, um, you have these places and these kind of like, uh, you know, these, um, artisans and stuff that are making just like on Etsy and their own little shops and Teespring and stuff. You have everything now, the 21st century, is all of the generations and all of the eras existing at once. Because if you're a 60 year old and you want something, some jacket that you wore or some car that you had, or some bubble gum that you chewed that like that went away, you can have it. If you, uh, you can have anything all at once. So you'll see like these Funko pops and you'll see, some kind of character from some movie and you're like, wait a minute, I kind of half remember that, but someone who's been thinking about wanting to figure that guy since the beginning of time. So now everyone can have it and everyone can experience it. So like when the kids who existed in the aughts, they may think that, uh, back to the future was theirs. They may, they may think, you know, American graffiti was theirs. Or they may think, uh, or whatever. You know, we were talking about remakes and um, uh, successful remakes. I went into, uh, and this kid is kind of along that thread. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I meant to mention it earlier. Um, I never, I was so terrified that I was going to go into it thinking about Tim Curry the whole time. And it was going to completely ruin my uh, my take of it. And the group, the, the group that I went with, it just so happened that the whole, it was like, it was when it came out and the place was just packed to the rafters. And I think that kind of goes along with that. Like how could, where was this, you know, interest coming from? And it makes me think they have one faction of people who saw it on television and read the book. And then you've got this new, um, horror file, group and then you've got a group of people who want to see it because the kids are slightly within their age range and they might relate to it 
So the whole place was like packed to the gills and I couldn't sit with my group. I ended up having to sit to the side and, and in my peripheral vision, I could see them like staring me down to see what my take was going to be because I (laughs) I was so damn skeptical. And it turned out, um, totally as a surprise to me that, I didn't think of Tim Curry one time due to right. the, due to the performance of Bill Skarsgård. So, like in that case, I think that it was a triumph. So, like in that case, in that remake, I think it was a definite uh, win. But I've had people totally disagree with me on that too. But uh, yeah, I um, actually love the new It, and I think we've talked about this before. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm sure that we have. I, of course, grew up with the television miniseries. Yeah. Um, But as much as I love Tim Curry, I've always kind of not liked that movie. Yeah. Um, Because, uh, so I didn't read it when I was 11 years old when the miniseries came out. But later on in life, I think I was about 20 by the time I picked it up. that book is so incredibly dark and um, they could never do it justice in the early nineties made for television. There was just no way. And I think it's still, you know, it's a fun movie. Um, It's exactly what it was meant to be. And of course there's like uh, Jonathan Brandis and Seth Green. And when I rewatch it, you know, it's kind of, Wow, that that's really cool <laughs> that you brought back kind of like the. For some reason, when I think of it, I think of John Ritter. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think of the yeah, kids. he's in there too. But when you bring uh, but when you bring up the kids, then all of a sudden that does come flooding back. That that Brandis is there, and it's especially uh, chilling when you think that he took his own life. Yeah. So yeah. it's you and, know it's really something. Well, and that's another thing too. Like it's uh, there's there's so much darkness even surrounding like anything about that story. Um, and then, so I was totally soaked for the remake. It did not disappoint. There is a part of me that's like, I wish that they had gone a little bit darker. Um, but we're still waiting on the second half. Uh, I think they might make up for it there. Yeah. Because I think you can only go so dark with, you know, a bunch of 12 and 13 year old kids on the screen, like as far as mainstream audiences go, but I'm, what, what the heck was up with? Oh, I don't want to spoil anything for people. Um, like, okay. Before we warning. go any further, uh, <laughs> if you need, if for some reason you're listening to, uh, a podcast about books and somehow you haven't seen the new movie about it, something's going to get spoiled here. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but, um, Number one, shame on you. And number two, let's go. Okay. So the the kid, Henry Bowers. Yeah. He, what the heck was them killing him off, seemingly at least, in the end of the first movie installment, the new one? I'm like, how are they, because that plays in later. Wait, whoa, whoa, so wait, I mean, wait a little... second. Wait a second. I think I may, wait a second. I don't remember him getting killed in that movie. Yeah, okay, so like the last time they go into the house 
and uh, the well that kind of leads to the underworld. Oh, shit. You mean him falling down the well when he falls down the well? Yeah, and I think they actually even show that, like, he dies. Um, And in the movie theater, I was like, what is going on? Because that plays so heavily into events that happen later. You know, I haven't seen seen the remake in a minute, but... I was thinking that when he's kind of being like, is he being talked to like at his dad's house? Like when he comes outside and he's just standing there, I thought that was the end. No, 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 no. That's before. Do you remember the end of it? Did, um, I was thinking that Henry, is it Brower or I thought it was Brower, right? Bower. Oh, Bower. Okay, I'm getting him mixed up with the kid and the the body. And stand oh, by yeah. me. Um, but so the part when with his dad, and then he walks outside, and then it's kind of almost like he's getting talked to on the wind or something. He's like standing out there by the car. Yeah, and he goes kind of catatonic, and that that's wasn't like, that wasn't the end of him. No, that wasn't the end of his storyline. There, he goes. He's that's kind of when he snaps and he goes after the kids, um, and so he ends up in the house with them, and then he it seemingly he dies. So he's but I a, don't know if they're like bringing him back as a ghost later or what because he can't that can't be the end of his story. That would be nuts. Um, but but see, and for I was kind of tempted to say, well, couldn't Pennywise just kind of like resurrect him? But then I was saying. Wait, there's like right. a huge uh, span of time where he's in the uh, the insane asylum, right? Right, like 27 years. So that's where I'm like, I don't know. I'm I'm just really mostly curious as to what direction they're taking that because, you know, in the in the book and in the original film, he like you said, he's in the. Um, He's in the insane asylum or prison, and he's spent he spent his whole life now, like wanting to get revenge on these kids for basically what they did to him, and and then he Pennywise helps him like break out, and and so I'm just curious like they kill him off as a kid in the first remake. I just want to know how that plays out, but we have to wait until like when's the next installment coming out? Oh my god, I don't even know. I think it's supposed to be next year. Yeah, I think it's September. I thought I wrote. Maybe. I thought I read something where like everything is coming out in 2019. It's gonna be like one of the biggest years of film. <sighs> That's exciting. This last year has been pretty amazing. Oh, it was, I don't know it was if hella you cool. saw. Uh, did you? The Annihilation. Um, okay. Bef- before <laughs> you say anything about Annihilation, um, I bought the Area X trilogy. Um, yeah. And and that was way, 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 way super before the, the movie was announced. So yeah. I hadn't started. It was on my to-be-read pile for like a year. And, I, and you know how that can be. So then, so yeah, then I, I So then I saw the announcement for the film, and I was like, Fuck. I can't read the no, books. What? Because um, I, I can't remember how you fell on the movie pre-book or the pre- book pre-movie. 
but I'm all about the movie pre-book. So, um, because I always think that a book will expand a story or will enhance a story and a movie contracts a story. So if you start out with right. the movie, then the book can only enhance it. So when I found out, when I saw that the announcement had been made, especially since it was done by Ex Machina director, I was like, ah, I got to watch the movie first. So then I bought the movie, and now the movie's on my to-be-watched pile. So I got the to-be-watched oh, pile annihilation, and I've got the Area X pile. So um, I'm just going to say then it's uh, I'm just going to say it's really good. The movie? It's really good. Yeah, I probably watch it at least once a month since it came out. Whoa, that's major. And especially since it's um, really good. I think it's one of those things where um it doesn't like the importance of the story doesn't hinge on the fact that it's I mean, saying predominantly female doesn't even cover it. I mean, it's right. it's massively female. But yeah. it's not one of those things where like that's the tagline. It's just, <coughs> it's just an incidental yeah, which part. I think is re- that's like really important too. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up actually because I think uh, in you know inclusiveness shouldn't be all about like you said the tagline like all female cast you know it should just be what it is. And 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 they do a really good job with that. It's I think we have to learn that. that movie like you're like feeling like they specifically made this as a, a female led female cast. You know, it's it just feels really more authentic. And I think that despite kind of like they're screaming it to the contrary, screaming, screaming, screaming to the contrary. I think that may have been one of the factors uh, that doomed Ghostbusters. Yeah. I, I think that that was such uh, – it was so screamingly that um, I I think that that – I mean, despite the other problems with it, I haven't even watched it. But um, Well, I guess, you know, like, you know, because female horror writers, we talk about this a lot. And it's like I don't want to be the token woman. Yeah. And I think even as a group, we're like, just let, just let it be a movie, you know? <laughs> like, um, that's more. I, I think it's really important that um, opportunities for women as you know, artists and writers and um, directors and and just all of it is. Uh, I think those need to be created and and pushed forward more because we are working toward this kind of like as a society that, that we're not going to leave people behind or leave people out. But I think, okay, the best way I know how to describe it is season, the coven season of American horror story. Okay. They have, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not totally, are you talking about precious? The no, actually, I was gonna bring up the actress. I always forget her name, which is because so horrible it, right now. It, it, it's um, really, got... it's really bad. But I hate her face. I cannot stand precious. <laughs> I just hate. Her I'm face. not talking about her though. But uh, the the actress with Down syndrome. She uh, oh. is a character in Coven, and it's never brought up 
that she's disabled. She just <laughs> is a character on the show. She is an actress with a disability on the show. And when I saw that that season, I'm not even a big fan of that season, really. It's not my favorite um, American Horror Story season. But it's one of my favorites just because I got so excited that they were like, they had this female character. She's, uh, you know, visibly disabled. And then it's not what her character is about. And I think that's kind of how I feel about any kind of inclusiveness. Like, like just the point is not that we are the token. The point is that we're just, we're just there to do our job. Sure. You see what I'm saying? It's like, um, Harlan Ellison, Harlan Ellison, actually, uh, he came out and I think it was, may have been in his Harlan Ellison's watching, uh, article or something. And he basically talked about how he had done a, uh, he had done some sort of article or some talking piece about how, um, there was this strange bias where, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what had happened, but basically there were female science fiction writers who were coming out and saying, I don't want my work to be kind of like shuffled in and not given, uh, not given a true review of any kind just to satisfy this quota from the female spectrum of the science fiction writing community where she was like, you know, um, and she was totally mentioning names. She was kind of like, uh, Anne McCaffrey, uh, releases some book where it's like Anne McCaffrey presents such and such a name. And then after a little while, then that name presents such and such a name. And then it becomes one of these things where it became, became kind of like the sewing circle thing. And she was just like, I want to run with the boys because I'm a writer and not because I'm a woman. And right. it ought to be writers across the board, whether like whatever you are, it ought to be writers only. And, uh, and he got on a lot of shit about that. And then it turned out that for as much shit that he got, he ended up getting a lot more, um, passionate, heartfelt letters from anonymous female writers of the, of the science fiction and horror community where they were like, thank you so much for kind of like being honest about the hypocrisy and about um, kind of like the bullshit of, I mean, they weren't, they weren't really using inclusion like we are now, but basically whatever language that would kind of like put that across. And I think that. And it is kind of like, it is sort of a, it's a kind of a difficult thing to navigate too, because there are at least I've noticed in the last few years that, um, a lot of the new up and coming like horror and science fiction writers, there is kind of a distinctive difference in their style or voice. And so I do think that there needs to be opportunities created. Um, but at the same time, not just like you said, like, well, we're going to publish this because it's written by a woman and we need four women in this anthology, yeah. at least. You know, like that's – nobody wants to be that. As a, as a writer, I don't know any writer that's like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, we want to be 
included because our because we work at this and it's our job and we pour our hearts into it and just like anybody does but I think that there what I've noticed is sometimes it's it's not so much um oh we you know we don't uh like female writers you know it's that there are these new voices these new perspectives are sometimes people want to stick with the styles and the voices that they know and like this familiar, um, like familiar narratives rather than kind of being adventurous and hearing from like people of color and women and people with disabilities and those perspectives, because the story is going to be a little bit different because we have a different experience. I think that there ought to be, um, maybe there ought to be sort of like tiers or like windows where you have this, I mean, like, especially now since it's kind of become, um, kind of like the touchstone of, of just the way we do things now, uh, or at least try to do things now, there ought to be something where it's like, okay, well you want to give exposure. You want to give exposure a name. You want to kind of like, have it loud enough for you to hear, but not so loud that it ends up becoming like, uh, an insult or whatever. Right. And, but then there should be a window where that ceases, where it's like, okay, well for, for a long time, every time we put this author on something, it would say something like female New York times, bestselling author. It's like after five years, let's cut the female off. Right, it's it, it, and that's I think what everybody wants is like we're we're just we're writers, we're artists, we're poets, and instead of having to like, because I think when you keep adding that, then it's like you're still putting me in a box. You oh, know absolutely. what I mean? You're still putting me in my place, and it's getting smaller and, and that's smaller. What's so frustrating? As the uh... I think the best way I've seen it handled. Um, just personally, the best way I've seen it handled is uh, one of the anthologies uh, that I've worked with in the last couple of years, they felt like they didn't have enough diversity in their authors. So what they did for one of their issues was they reached out to women, people of color, um, you know, just all these from different communities and and then they did a blind reading. Oh, I see. Okay. So yeah, and I think that's probably the best way. And that was what I was gonna know, mention, yeah. Cause then you're welcoming because I think a lot of times if you're in this like marginalized group and you look at a certain market and you're like, they're not gonna want you know, I might feel like that that market doesn't want to hear my story. But then if they reach out to me and they're like, hey, actually, we'd really love to hear something from you. And then after that, they're blind reading, but they know they have women. Mm -hmm. They know they have marginalized groups in that pile of stories. You know, and they know that, like, chances are when they end up voting on it, they're going to have a really good mix of people. And it, and it ended up working out really well. So I think that's probably one of the better experiences that I've had as far as like being asked because, you know, they wanted a new 
they wanted to hear new voices. Um, they wanted to hear from people that that kind of were struggling to, you know, be included. And then at the same time, our work had to speak for itself. I think the meritocratic, uh, or the meritocratic rather, I think that's the way to go. It's like uh, if you if you're if you have everything in a brown paper cover and you you read through that thing and there's no uh there's or uh, at least amount of bias as you can possibly have anyway i mean if you if for some reason you i think it seems to me like you'd have to be a hell of an editor to recognize someone's um writing style without having any foreknowledge of who it would have been but at least right. in, in that way, uh, that's great. I think that that ought to be implemented with practically everything that has to do with any kind of application at all, anywhere, with anything. Yeah. I think that's the way. Yeah, you know, all for, like, blind reading, but I think the kind of, like, the editors being vocal about, like, hey, <laughs> we want to hear from everybody. You know, that was what made all the difference. And then getting into that anthology, it was like, you know, an actual, it felt like a success rather than somebody like, hey, I need a, I need a disabled female writer. <laughs> which, which I have seen, I have absolutely seen uh, open calls for that type of thing. I've yeah. seen open calls like that. And um, it's funny because, I mean, being a white heterosexual male... Like me looking at that, and I'm going, oh okay. It's not like I feel some kind of knife in my gut because I can't participate or anything like that. But uh, in my case, I mean, history has shown that like where where on earth was I not welcome? So it's like, eh, I guess go ahead. But like you said, it, at, at some point, the more titles you put before the New York or the Pushcart Prize nominated author. Um, at some point <laughs> you end up in like a matchbox with all the little, uh, classifications you get. So, right. But I think it's, I think it's yogurt. important that we are, yogurt. you know, making an effort. It's yogurt. To... Isn't, it? <laughs> isn't it? What? Is that yogurt? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, can he see me? He's like, what is <laughs> happening? Yeah, the internet—that's what does it all, all the time. But no, I uh, I pay a lot of attention to sounds. I think you know what I mean, though. Like when when you're trying to pay attention to what something really sounds like. So instead of saying, you know, they stirred the the almost empty carton of yogurt, you could say like it sounded like the pearl getting sand rubbed over it inside the i don't know whatever something like that <laughs> some, I know what you mean. <laughs> some kind of some kind of bullshit like that but uh but yeah I, I pay a lot of attention to to sounds like that so uh anyways that's so funny you totally freaked me out for a second uh yeah i had to tell you that other stuff just to to alleviate your mind um what's up are you getting some strange light Oh, am I too loud? Sorry. Um, okay, well, let's see. 
I suppose we should probably start wrapping up. Um, yeah, it's been really fun though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and <clears throat> it'd be great to to have you on uh, at least every year. I mean, I I love to say you know every few months, but it's probably better to to give you some space. But um, I wanted to, if anyone is still out there, we haven't had a, a question in about an hour, so. Um, I wanted to go oh, over. Oh man, I I probably bore I like bored you. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> most of the time, I, and I've and I found out most of the time they're just kind of listening and, and hanging out and listening. Uh, they may not necessarily be looking at the screen for their like comments and, and memos and stuff. But um, well, I've got a a chat book that I'm supposed to be writing for Dim. <laughs> I love I love that and, it's supposed to be. That's cool. And, well, That's okay. Well, I was gonna say like after after that happens and it comes out next spring, like we could talk about it at some point next year and find out what it is I wrote. Because okay. Okay. Huh. <laughs> I'm like, I have some ideas. I got to fill at least 8,000 words. Okay. Um, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind explaining the chat book to me. Um, okay. So, and this is like something people always ask. So like a book is, anywhere usually a first novel is anywhere from like 80,000 to 120,000 words and a novella is like at least 15,000 to 50,000 and a short story you know runs four or five seven thousand words so a chat book is right between a short story and a novella so 8,000 to 15,000 words my god that's so specialized short book yes it is and i had actually not heard the term until just a few years ago and most of the time that i had heard it it was uh by friends of mine that write poetry write chat books and those are really popular in that genre and dim shores puts out two or three chat books every year and every chat book gets its own artist that does the cover and um they only make like 250 copies of that one chat book. And uh, so it's a, it's pretty cool to get asked by them to, to do a chat book. And after I had done Heirloom for their anthology, um, Sam Cowan asked me if I would do a chat book. And then things kind of got pushed off. But now uh, I definitely have one coming out next spring. So, with them. So I'm really I get, excited about it. I guess for the longest time I thought chapbook was I don't I didn't think it had anything to do with length. I thought it had to do with production. Like I thought it was like a a smaller, thinner book that had like a um like a cardstock type cover that wasn't it as glossy. Is probably also to do with that. Okay. Um they're just also typically between the short story and the novella. So with does uh, since it's a chapbook and it's between the short story and novella, so it's just going to be a single story then, or it's supposed to be. Um, I, honestly, uh, Sam had told me I could do two stories because mine, as you know, typically run really short. Yeah. So um, I think that was mostly my ideas. Yeah. Okay. So I, I might do two stories. All right. In, in the chat book. I haven't decided yet. It depends. Once I sit down and I start writing, if one's going to take off, then it'll be one. Okay. 
Well, I mean, I I guess it's better to go organic. Even like uh, plotting for having it ready at a certain time was probably maddening occasionally. But uh, yeah, it's I think it's due in February. Looking at it, I sound like such a professional. I'm like, ah, I think I gotta get it in by February. Um, hopefully, start working on that really soon. I'm actually like, like I said, like I came up with a couple of ideas that I I'm really excited about. Um, and we'll see if I can get them, either of them or both of them together to eight thousand words. But, so we're we're all gonna find out together. Okay. Uh, what I end up writing uh, for this chapbook is coming up. That's rocks. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, if anyone's left, I um, I just wanted to completely recommend uh, the story heirloom that uh, Brooke has put in the. Looming Low, uh, Volume 1 from Dim Shores. It's an anthology that was nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award. So definitely check that out uh, because Heirloom is a fantastic story, and I'm not telling you a damn thing about it because you have to go into it completely cold if you can manage well, it. Well, there's so many good stories in that anthology, too. Like That was just total, total rock stars in there. It's awesome. And uh, definitely uh, everyone check out the Wicked Library and the Lift podcast to to hear some of Brooke's stories uh, dramatized. Definitely go to Amazon and find uh, Volume 1, Issue 3 of Vesterian, the literary journal for her story, I Feel Better Now, which is uh, on the short list for the Pushcart Prize. <laughs> Absolute short list. Handful of, uh, of authors. And uh, that, <laughs> like I said, that's available on Amazon. Uh, thank you again, Brooke Wara, for being on the Diabolical Index tonight. It has been an absolute thank blast. You. We probably yeah, it's always fun talking to you. It, it honestly, uh, we probably could have talked six hours. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Uh, yeah, so, for sure. <laughs> so uh, we'll definitely have you on again, if not before. Uh, uh, definitely when the chat book comes out, or uh, some somehow in service of the chat book. Uh, through Dim Shores, we'll get something going on that, and uh, and we will talk to you again and have you on and just ramble on forever wherever we feel like going. Yeah, so, and you watch Unico, and, and we'll I'll come watch back to that. I'll watch Unico. I and that Mark Twain weirdness that sounded pretty cool. Yeah, the adventures so, of Mark Twain. Yeah. So anyway, uh, definitely check out. Go to brookwara dot com. <clears throat> Excuse me. B-R-O-O-K-E-W-A-R-R-A dot com and uh, check out all of her awesome news about the, the world of writing and um, and Washington. And uh, yeah, so that is the Diabolical Index for December 10th, 2018, where the pages of the Uncanny reside. I'm Corey Dawson. This is Magic Squirrel Network. And as always, keep it squirrely. The squirrel was magic! magic.